amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network. And each week we pick a new book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book, This week, I'm happy to say we have, as our GAT on the show, we've had him on the show before about another book, but he's written yet a a new book called Nations, The Long History and Deep Roots of Political Ethnicity and Nationalism. This one is every bit as pathbreaking as his last one, which I believe was called War in Human Civilization. Is that right, Azar? Correct. Yes, okay. And yes, this one is every bit as piquant and feisty and interesting, and I hope it turns a lot of heads and changes a lot of minds. It did mine, uh, so I really encourage you to go out and read it. It uh, takes directly on what I might call the received view about nations, that is that they are quite new, they are invented or imagined, I suppose is the catchphrase these days. Azar doesn't think so, and after reading his book, I don't really either. Actually, truth be told, I never really did, but uh, his book provided a lot of uh, evidence for what we'll talk about as the traditionalist line on the origin of, um, I guess, ethnic uh, communities and their relationships to politics. So, Azar, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for hosting me. Sure, my pleasure. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm Israeli, and I'm uh, a professor and the chair of the political science uh, department at Tel Aviv University. Uh, Most of my uh, life I spent as a... researcher of war, and then I've turned my attention to other subjects as well. So tell us why you wrote uh, Nations, the Long History and Deep Roots of Political Ethnicity and Nationalism. Well, I, I was troubled by the by the turn of, uh, uh, of opinion, uh, starting with uh, scholars, uh, well, it started in the, uh, the, the 1930s, but, but then... Uh, a return in earnest from the 1980s with the idea that uh, nations were somehow new, that the connection between uh, a state and, and the people was uh, something new and modern, that it only started, say, from the uh, from the French Revolution, the, the Industrial Revolution, or perhaps a little earlier with the Print Revolution, earlier in the, the early modern period. And, uh, that, and, and uh, this uh, view became very fashionable. It uh, re- resonates uh, beyond the scholarly circles, and I believe that now uh, uh, every student in the, in the humanities and social sciences uh, is uh, groomed on this um, idea. So uh, I, I never believed this was true, so I uh, had to write a book about it. Yeah, I know that my I have a daughter who's she's four years old. She's just barely four years old, and she's already gotten the idea that she's an American. She says, we're in America now. It's not like other places. That's because she's a modern child. <laughs> yeah. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't teach her that. She's like, that's the American flag. I'm like, yes, it is. Uh, so uh, I, I, quite, uh, I, I, I quite agree with you. Let's talk a little bit about the origins of this particular idea that nations or uh, the, the national state, let's put it that way, and it's modern, is an invention. Uh, who, who, uh, who founded this idea? Why, how, where did we get this notion? Um, well, the, I think that this notion has uh, two origins. One is that modernity indeed uh, has created a, a, a huge, uh, you know, generated a huge transformation. Nobody's denying this. Uh, people moved from uh, rural communities to cities. They became uh, sub- they uh, all uh, um, became subject to 
uh, to uh, military service in, in most countries in uh, they, uh, during the 19th century they uh, they were received uh, universal education which which imprinted in them the ideas of, of, of national history and so forth so modernity was obviously a huge change and uh, nobody's denying this the question is whether or not uh, they felt a sense of being a people and identify and were identified themselves with a particular state before before modernity. And that's the, the question. And and the other origin was the was the uh, revulsion and against the the uh, the manifestation of, of chauvinist nationalism during the nineteenth century, the, the, during the twentieth century, the horror at the, the atrocities caused by, by uh, nationalism, particularly uh, during the Second World War, Nazism, and so forth. So there was a tendency to belittle the uh, the uh, national uh, uh, factor to, to try to argue that it was, uh, as I said, that it was uh, first of all immoral and illegitimate, but also but also uh, but also a modern invention contrived, and we should just. Uh, Get over it. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things you point out in the book, I, I quite liked. Uh, I it might be controversial, but I don't see how uh, many of the people who were the theorists of the modernist position—that is, that nations are modern—were in fact kind of deracinated types themselves. They had fled, uh, usually Central Europe, and exactly. ended up someplace in the in, in the in the English-speaking world. And for them, uh, nations were sort of invented because they got a new one. Correct. Most of the modernists were refugees from Nazi Germany during the 1930s. Uh, actually, all of them, ex- all of the leading uh, modernists except one, all of them fled um, uh, fled uh, persecution and uh, nationalist national chauvinism during the 1930s. Uh, um, came to the United States or Britain, and uh, it was uh, they they faced a uh, very painful uh, question of identity. They were. were um, they were, you know, they they rebelled against the the dominance of, uh, I mean, the, against their life experience. So it was quite natural for them to regard nationalism as uh, as insignificant. Yeah, and then many of them are very brilliant people and sympathetic folks, and and I, th- I think it's I think it's very good to put it in that kind of uh, they did they were, you know, they, they were the subjects of of of. Uh, of nationalist oppression, they definitely were, and so one could see exactly. why they might wonder. I also wonder, though, that um, you know, Marxism is an interesting thing, and you mentioned it. Marx doesn't really uh, pay a lot of attention to nations, except to say that they'll go away. And um, many of the many of the people that were the founders of the modernist position were, uh, if not Marxists, on the left. That's right. That's right. Though, though uh, they say the communist, um, even though uh, Marxist doctrine uh, does not really recognize the nationalist factor, communists were quite aware that there were that there were nations and that uh, so both uh, say uh, the Soviet Union and other countries in the Soviet bloc at the time, particularly uh, Yugoslavia, regarded themselves as a multinational uh, states and uh, at least in principle or in theory, uh, believed that uh, peoples had the right of self-determination, that, that they would uh, and uh, the Soviet Union uh, as I said, at least in theory was recognized. Was organized along uh, yeah. along this line. Sure, sure, that's right. So there's another strain as well, and you know, I uh, I guess I might mildly disagree with you about the the origins of this, in the sense that I, I you know, this notion of um, civic nationality or civic identity that you can actually find in the French Revolution. I mean, it seems to me that a lot of people that think about nations don't like them and haven't liked them for a long time. And that that has something to do with this notion of sort of a universal identity or the kind of universalism that you found in French revolutionary rhetoric. What do you think about that? Well, it's absolutely true. But but the, the fact remains that uh, most of those who uh, profess to be uh, not to like nationalism live in in, <laughs> in particular national states uh, identified with these nations. We have this uh, famous expression by... Uh, Jürgen Habermas, the German uh, philosopher, about uh, about the uh, constitutional patriotism, uh, but 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 obviously people identify with the, the constitution of the of the particular state and particular people. It's uh, and the French Revolution itself, even though uh, obviously mm-hmm. it proclaimed universal principle and so on, it was it was centered on the French people. It centered on the French people, 
and French civic nationalism centers on the French people, the French language. It makes it easy for people to join the French nation if they, uh, if they accept the French uh, language, French culture, and so forth. But it's, it, it's very, clearly, uh, it very clearly centers on the French state and the French people. Yeah, I think that you could uh, probably, one, one acid test of this to see, is to see uh, uh, which team you support in the World Cup. <laughs> and I'd be this, willing to bet. <laughs> this has been called banal, uh, banal nationalism, and it, it very well exists in the in the you know in the liberal West today. People forget that that that, that, lib, that nationalism seems to be in decline only because it has been accepted so widely. I yeah, mean, that's true. Yeah, yeah. If people you know if people uh, feel at home, so they, they, they it's like good health. You you. You miss it only when uh, when when they when it's gone. So when people are uh, secure in their home countries and uh, they feel that they uh, their country expresses their national identity, so it, the whole question of nationalism receded to the uh, sidelines. But but even in the most uh, liberal and, and comfortable countries, like say uh, Canada or the, the, these days the United Kingdom or Spain or Belgium. When the national, uh, when the when the question of uh, of what what your identity is returns to the front line, as with uh, Quebec or with uh, Scotland or with the Basque uh, country or with uh, Catalonia and so forth, so it, it, it immediately becomes obvious that the national question is a very salient one. Yeah, no, that's that's <laughs> it's absolutely true, and there are a lot of funny examples of that. I mean, I I, I think that. Well, just to give an anecdote, I, I always ask my students, uh, this is here in the United States, of course, uh, whether they can imagine a form of political community other than the democratic nation state. And they can't. <laughs> there just isn't anything else that could conceivably be legitimate. So you're absolutely right. I mean, they don't, it, you know, 40 years ago, people might have said, well, you know, socialism, or I don't know, you know, there was a sort of thoroughgoing, I don't know, there were nationalisms of various kinds. But it just doesn't really exist anymore, right? We, national national identity become has become transparent to people. Where, where, where it, when in, in those places where national identity has uh, uh, national sovereignty has indeed been achieved and is regarded as uh, as um, as you know as fait accompli. Yeah, well, it's part of the world. I mean, I think that's the way they see it. It's they don't notice it anymore. It's just exactly. part of the part of the world. And so let's talk a little bit about the substance of the book itself. Um, one of the things I really liked about this book, and I liked about your uh, previous book, I hope I didn't skip any, uh, War and Human Civilization, is that you begin at the beginning, and that is with uh, the uh, evolution of particular human traits, mental traits, psychological traits that are dealt with by evolutionary psychologists and things like this. Uh, you don't shy away from that, and I think that's good. I know that in my own work I've done the same thing. Um, uh, could you talk a little bit about I guess what I might call the evolutionary origins of a preferment or attachment or preference for people that, I don't know how else to say it, except look like you or act like you or something right. like that. Yeah. Right. For many, for many, for throughout most of the 20th century, the whole notion of human nature was regarded as, uh, as completely out of place. The, the social sciences believed and the humanities believed that, uh, that the man was uh, wholly, uh, shaped by by culture, by history, and so forth. But but the the idea of the human nature has returned in the, in, the, in the past decades, and it's now based on the on the logic of uh, evolutionary theory. And 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 we know that people from uh, the very beginning and the very beginning of our species goes back uh, perhaps uh, two hundred thousand years. Uh, they have they lived in um, in small groups, and they showed a close attachment to their kin. And to those who shared culture with them, and uh, people, and 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 this this is uh, you know this this is often referred to as tribalism, and the tribalism has all, always been a very strong uh, a very strong uh, sentiment. People uh, show attachment to their close kin and to the culture alike because they because because they are their kin and because uh, because the the um, because their existence. Dependent on the well-being of the of the group, so uh, these traits have become, uh, in a way, engraved in our evolutionary uh, um, 
heritage which we carry throughout history. Obviously, it has gone through many, uh, many uh, transformation and changes. People do no longer live in uh, tribes in most of the world, but uh, but uh, larger communities have, uh, have uh, developed. Uh, peoples and, and, and nations and uh, state emerge, states emerge. Uh, a few millennia ago, but still the the trait that we saw we, that we then that we show our preference towards our clothes, those who regard we whom, whom we regard rightly or not as our as our kin and those who share the same culture with us uh, is still with us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, nobody questions the notion that you are predisposed to uh, let's say like your children or maybe your siblings, although people hate their siblings sometimes, um, <laughs> than other people, everybody accepts this. And there's good, um, and there's a good evolutionary logic behind this. You mentioned it in the book, kin selection. That is the notion that uh, by helping somebody with a lot of your genes, you're actually helping yourself. Um, it's not really altruistic. I think that the, that the challenge becomes to see how that notion, that is kin selection, um, preference for people with a lot of your genes is transferred to preference for people with fewer of your genes. Because another thing you point out in the book is, is that, um, well, let, let me see, how do I put this? Uh, a French person is more likely to share genes with another French person than they are with, say, a Chinese person. On average. Yes, on average. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah, on average. Right. Yeah, that's right. So, but that, that challenge, getting over that leap, I mean, one, I guess what I'm saying is one can see how the mechanism is, in a certain sense, hijacked. Because right. humans are very good at noticing similarities and differences among themselves, for example, in facial features. That's right. We're extraordinarily good at it. Um, and, you know, m- many species can't even uh, uh, recognize their own kin. So we are definitely wired to do this um, and give them a certain amount of preferential treatment. And, again, another thing you point out in the book is that this is the way we lived for basically all of our existence before the state appeared. Ninety-nine percent of our existence. Yeah, that's, 99%. that's exactly right. So um, let's call this group the, the tribe, and obviously there's a certain amount of altruism within it. That is, people will sacrifice their own interests for the interests of these other people. But when does the nation appear, or the ethnos, or ethne? Some people call it. Um, well, I, I argue that nations appear uh, as earlier states, and the first states appeared five thousand years ago. Uh, and, and, and the, the nation came uh, close on the heels of the first states. Uh, we, have, uh, we have several kinds of states, city-states and, and empires, which are which city-states, empires are, are multi-ethnic, but, but in, in, in between them we have the so-called territorial state. And, all, and, and, and what I am suggesting is that these territorial states were actually national states, and the first national state was the first large state, uh, ancient Egypt. And we have many other examples uh, which are still with us, ancient China, uh, Japan from the time of its uh, consolidation as a unified state about uh, 1,500 years ago, and then many others. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you, you spend a lot of time in the book on definitional issues, which I suspect is, is was pr- probably not very pleasant for you, <laughs> because the the the, uh, the terminology itself is sort of messy. So what what in your conception is a a, a nation? A nation is uh, I I uh, hijack here uh, the um, the uh, a definition by uh, one of the modernists. I. I Usually, uh, the, the idea the, the, the nation is a rough congruence between a people and a state. If you have a particular people with a, with a certain and with a certain culture and a certain uh, uh, ethnocultural uh, traits, and then it's more or less congruent with a state. And well, I'm suggesting that this congruence is, is not accidental because it's that much easier to uh, to create a state within a space um, inhabited by. Uh, by this, by a single ethnos, because of the sense of uh, homogeneity and then solidarity. So, if we have this uh, rough congruence between between the state and the people or an ethnos, this this would be a national state and a nation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, these things, these nations appear with states. That's roughly five thousand years ago. I guess my question would be this: as a historian, how do we know, in terms of positive evidence? that people 
that is both common people, conceived of themselves to be members of something like a nation? And how do we know that the people that ruled them also conceived of themselves as rulers of a, a national entity? That, that's a very good question. And, and, and there's obviously a, a, a big problem involved, and that is that most of the population could not, uh, could not read and write. They were illiterate, and so the, the, we have no record of what, uh, what they thought and uh, what they believed. That, that was, uh, say, 90-95% uh, of the population in most historical societies. So, uh, but, but and, and this is what the modernists, um, based on this, the modernists uh, uh, claim that they uh, did not actually have this uh, wider sense of belonging to, uh, to a broader nation or a people. But but we have the actual behavior during uh, during crisis, and 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 people would uh, would uh, would um, habitually during crisis, say during uh, during foreign invasion, would rise to defend the the, the nation, the, the the state, their country, their culture, and uh, we see this throughout history. And I think that would be the best evidence of of what they felt and and the authorities which. Uh, which usually disenfranchised the, the masses would, in time of national crisis, would, would call upon the, the people to, uh, to rise in arms, to come to the uh, uh, to to fight the foreign invader and so forth. So, so, so they too had a good reason to believe that such uh, such an appeal would have uh, would would, uh, would be successful. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the, for I think our audience, the the obvious example, the great uh, font of evidence for this among the masses of people that listen to this is in fact the Hebrew Bible, which, Quite is, right. which is full of that sort of stuff. Quite right. Yeah. But the, but the Hebrew Bible has, has long been regarded, even by, by modernists, the, the Hebrews themselves has long been regarded as an exception. Uh, 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 they were regarded as, uh, as unified by the, by, by the particular, by, by the special, uh, Religion by by the practice of uh, Torah reading, which which uh, which meant that the literacy was uh, was uh, more widespread among them, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but but the same was true with other with other peoples and with other nations throughout history. They always rose against the foreign invader. At the end, and the authorities could always count on the people to be loyal to the state in such a emergency. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I know that in the Russian case, which is the one that I've studied most deeply, very, on, very early on in what we think of as Russian history, really Rus history, uh, we do see, in fact, this. Uh, immediately, um, you know, the Mongols come and nobody doubts who they are uh, and that they're different and that the people of the Russian lands should fight them. Uh, exactly. And the people of the Russian lands were um, Orthodox Christians that spoke some dialect of Russian. Um, this was, yeah, this was, this was sort of, this is evident in, uh, in pretty much all of all of the texts. Although it is the case that it becomes stronger and weaker. It, interestingly, in the Russian case, it becomes weaker for a moment. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, it, my own empirical investigations would suggest that that's true. I mean, and there are other things as well. Uh, I think you talked bloody, bloody foreigners were always bloody foreigners. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. that, that was very a very strong sense throughout history. Yeah, well, it's, a, it's a commonly said that Americans never know they're Americans until they go overseas. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you, you need you need to have contact with the foreigners to, to see that, 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 that you know that, that, that you are different, that you are your own identity. That's uh-huh. also a common a common trait of, of national communities. Uh-huh. How does religion work into this? I mean, in the Hebrew case, that one's that one's quite clear. Uh, can you give some other examples of the ways in which? Well, yeah, uh, people, modernists, especially Anderson and others, have have. Uh, Suggested that, that, that the identity of people was mostly religion rather than national; that they were belonged to a Christian community or to uh, or to a Muslim community rather rather than than the, the, the nation being their primary identity. But this was uh, this this was not the case. I mean, before universal religions, uh, most most religions were actually national. I mean, they. Uh, and, and, and people and, and, and the, um, the and, and the religious identity itself was part of the of the national identity. Even even when um, even when universal universal religions uh, arose, like with the Christianity and so forth, even then there were always national churches of the universal uh, 
uh, faith. And, and the, the national churches were, uh, were always uh, patriotic. They always um, upheld the, uh, the national cause. And even, even in those cases where the country was uh, overtaken by, by foreign invaders, the, the church was uh, quite often the repository of the national feeling. Yeah. I mean, I think the case of Christianity is a terrific one uh, for the points you're trying to make, because I was raised a Lutheran, for example, and uh, so uh, Lutheranism is at its origins a a national splinter group (laughs) from Christianity. And I know that it's even been assimilated here in the United States, so that the kind of Lutheranism that that we practice here in the the middle part of the United States is very different than the kind of Lutheranism which is practiced in Germany, let's say. Um, so this, this tendency for, uh, different ethnic groups to assimilate, um, religions to their own national, I guess, um, habits is a very strong one. I was talking to a woman the other day who studied, she actually studied a Jewish activist, female Jewish activist in the United States. And she mentioned to me that if you want to study reform Judaism, you go to Cincinnati, Ohio. <laughs> that's, that's like where um, the kind of this American brand of Jew, this reformed Judaism, like Cincinnati, Ohio. There's no more American place than Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, right. So yeah, this, this assimilating tendency is very strong. And early on, in, as you point out in the book, I mean, uh, Christianity is a universal religion. It's supposed to be, you know, this is the ideal. It has not worked out very well. <laughs> sorry, sorry, but it really has not worked out very well because these churches it, have all been nationalized. Right. It, it, it worked. Quite well, but not as perfectly as people imagine. No, no. Always Anderson imagined. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, no that's, that's, that's exactly right. So if we go ahead and we agree with you that uh, nations, these national, national groups existed, uh, that they were political groups and sometimes religious groups, uh, that in times of crisis they always rallied around this sort of central notion of common identity. Um, what is different then about the modern nationalism? Did, did the modernists have, did they have anything to offer us about what, what happened in the 18th, 19th, and 20th century with nationalism? Sure. There has been an erosion of local identities because uh, before, before modernity, 95, 90% of the population lived in a scattered rural community. Now they were all thrown together in, in cities and were, as I said, subject to, to universal education and to military conscription and so forth. So, so there was a, a stronger sense of unity. There were... The, improved communication, uh, better education, and, 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 and so forth. And uh, the, in, in addition, there was, uh, there's been this notion of, of popular sovereignty, which also uh, made what the, what, the, what the people wanted the, the cornerstone of, of legitimacy and also of, of political authority in, uh, in, uh, in, in many countries. Um, so for modernists, this was actually the, the, the beginning of the nation. As I see it, it was more of, of, of the, the deliberation of the nation. I mean, the people had, had always been uh, patriotic. Now they also hold the shots politically, and then they express their preferences very clearly, and their preferences were clearly nationalistic. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. One of the things that is commonly said about modern history is we move away from multinational empires and to uh, nation states. And the idea of popular sovereignty is definitely involved in that. And one of the things that people will also say is that these multinational states uh, didn't really pay a lot of attention to that. They were not national states that they, they were explicitly sort of tried to poo poo the notion of, of nation. Is that true? Well, it's, it's, it's only partly true. I mean, they were all obviously uh, multi-ethnic, but, but, uh, Nearly all, if not all, uh, empires in history were, were, were built around uh, an, an imperial people. There was an imperial people in the middle of uh, each empire. I mean, it was the Russian people in the Russian Empire. It was uh, it, it was the it was the Turks in the Ottoman Empire, and so forth throughout the throughout history. I mean, there was an imperial people here. Obviously, the empire was, uh, it was in the interest of the empire to, to present itself as, uh, as universal and, and to uh, make all its, um, all its uh, subjects um, equal subject of the empire. I mean, they were all equally, um, equally under the heel of the empire, but were they were regarded as, uh, as, uh, as equal and, and they were, the empire encouraged them especially the elites, 
of the various ethnic communities within the empire to participate and to serve the empire and to, to rise in its, uh, in its service. But still, there was the reality of, of, the, of the imperial people at the center of the empire in which, in which uh, the, uh, the uh, power of the empire rested. Mm-hmm. which it both count as, as its main Yeah, I mean, and I think another thing that is interesting is that if you believe what the modernists say about empires, it's difficult to explain why there are, I don't know if constant is the right word, but there are periodic ethnic uprisings. Um, I mean, the, the, the case, again, the case of the Jews is a particularly interesting one in the Roman Empire, but also the Gauls, also the Britons, um, they, they just wouldn't settle down. Of course. Over time, as in the Roman Empire, there could be a, a process of assimilation. I mean, ethnic and national identities are not constant. They uh, may change over time, and people may uh, change identity and adopt another one. And in, in, in uh, long, uh, in enduring empires, it could be the case that uh, many of the peoples over the century would assimilate into the uh, into the main ethnicity of the empire. It, it happened in large parts of the Roman Empire, where the Say the population of Gaul and then Spain adopted Latin and uh, and began to see themselves as Romans and then the same obviously happened in China and then in, in most uh, in many other uh, empires but still there was again even here there was a, a close connection between ethnic identity whatever it may be and and uh, loyalty loyalty and and uh, to the state yeah the Byzantines thought of themselves as Romans but they weren't. <laughs> the Romanians speak a, you know, they speak a Romance language, but they're not yes. exactly French. Um, so, and I know that it's the case that, uh, at least in my own studies of the Russian elite in the early modern period, is that uh, you know they did make some attempt to assimilate uh, foreign princes, especially Muslim princes, but they never made it to the top. I know this for a fact. This is one of my very few findings in all of my scholarly studies is that if you're a Muslim, you really couldn't go that far. Well, you had to convert, first of all. You absolutely had to convert. There's no way you could uh, get into the Russian court without converting. Um, but once you converted, then you, you know, you're, there was a kind of a glass ceiling because it was a, it was a Russian empire. That's, that's exactly so. So, so. so there was always ambivalence in the attitude of the uh, imperial authorities. On the one hand, they would... Uh, Love to see the uh, the other ethnicities in the within the empire, you know, converting into their own, uh, assimilating into the uh, core nation, core people or core nation of the of the empire, and and whenever this was possible, they would uh, pursue this uh, path. Or, but but uh, when they sensed that this would uh, be impossible and only inside resistance, so they would uh, opt for, for an inclusive and, and non-assimilating uh, uh, policy. And both, both policies were there, were there. Yeah. I, I, one of the things I found fascinating in the book is um, there are some passages in there you quote about the Yanomamo. I think many people probably know who the Yanomamo are. Yeah. Uh, the, they're a tribal group, and in, 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 uh, it's in South America, isn't it? I'm, I'm sorry. Right. Yes. I'm, I'm uh, and and they say that they are the first people, and that they are the best people, and that everyone else is more or less, mm, I don't know how to put it, uh, just not up to snuff. Uh, right. Now, it's funny, because in my own research with the Russians, the Russians said, the early Russians, that is before they sort of met the Europeans, said exactly the same things about themselves. Exactly. Yeah, it's true of every people. Yeah, that's why I think so too. <laughs> so this notion that somehow uh, ethnic prejudice, or I guess what we'd call it, pridefulness, and also xenophobia, these are not unusual things at all. Sure. Yeah, I don't. That universe. Yeah, I just it's a it was striking to to read these passages and, and think you know I just read the Russians would say the same thing. Europeans would come to Russia and they would come to the Russian court and the Russians would be very disdainful of them, even though the Europeans were much more advanced in many ways. Sure. The Russians were still totally disdainful of them. That, you know, they just weren't, yeah. So, yeah, these things uh, lie obviously very deep in the human breast, I think. So um, one of the things I, I think would be interesting to talk about is the way in which nationalism is playing out today. Um, I talked to Francis Fukuyama, I guess it was a year ago, about a, a book that he wrote about political evolution. And one of the things he said was that areas of the world which are still tribal, I mean, they, they may have a common ethnicity among the tribes, but these these are particularly... Uh, they're having a difficult uh, sort of transition to modernity. Can you talk a little bit about that? They really haven't quite formed nations yet. I'm thinking mainly about areas in Africa. Sure. I mean, I mean first of all, there are many uh, 
many uh, stretches of, of the world where, where tribalism is still very strong, so uh, a, a wider um, national identity has not been formed. But, but in the case of Africa and, and, and parts of Asia as well, the, one of the problems was that, uh, the, that, the, that the boundaries between states, in, uh, say in Africa, is, uh, were, were, were uh, drawn by the yeah. European powers during the 19th century with total disregard to ethnic uh, realities. So what you have is uh, different ethnicities uh, thrown together in the same states and, and some of them uh, finding themselves in different states, different neighboring states. So when, when the African uh, states um, gained their independence in the 1960s, it was clear that you know redrawing the map would, would cause uh, total mayhem because of all the uh, all the, uh, the usual uh, stuff with, that happens when, when you try to adjust um, ethnic boundaries and political boundaries. And, and, and so they uh, vowed to leave everything as it is. But uh, this has uh, worked only partly successfully, as we see in uh, many African countries, and uh, which uh, we have two cases of uh, splits in uh, existing state, the last being the, uh, the split between... Uh, South Sudan and Sudan itself on, on ethnic uh, grounds, and we have uh, ethnic troubles throughout, uh, throughout uh, Africa, where tribes and, and above tribes, where ethne, uh, find themselves in um, in uh, disharmony, and uh, sometimes this uh, may gen- degenerate into civil war. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that occurs to me is, is that we, in the last two or three hundred years, we have embarked on a great process of sorting people. Uh, there are countervailing tre- trends as well. I mean, there are some people that, um, you know, I think like Armenians are a good example. They're everywhere. Uh, but generally speaking, these ethnic groups have consolidated, particularly after World War II. I mean, you think about the Germans, they were all sort of shoved back into Germany. Yes. Um, and, and, I mean, do you see this process continuing? We have to remember that the process in Eastern Europe, and as you mentioned, the Germans was a was a very violent process. Yeah, I mean the, the Germans were simply driven out from where they lived in uh, throughout uh, Eastern Europe and in Eastern Europe in, in, in general. I mean, we had the example of, of uh, the disintegration of Yugoslavia. I mean, when, when ethnic communities are mixed together, it's very difficult to uh, to align political uh, uh, political and ethnic borders. Uh, so the process itself is is uh, maybe maybe you know maybe hell, uh, but so so whenever ethnic community can um, get along uh, with each other, it, it may be very good for them to, to stay together. But uh, sometimes they simply do not wish to. I I, I don't pretend that I have uh, the answers for such cases. I'm just just trying to give an accurate. Uh, description of, of what the actual uh, uh, state of affairs is. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I quite agree with you, and I, I think that, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this if, if you won't, that the notion that somehow nations are invented or have some sort of slight hold on our consciousness is dangerous when we're making policy about these places, because I, I think that um, taking that notion too lightly is, is, has been proven to be a mistake, um, particularly in the Central European case. Let's take Iraq, which which has been in the yeah. headlines. I mean, um, the uh, U.S. presidents used to talk uh, and, and still talk about about the the people of Iraq, but but there is really no people of Iraq. I mean, they are the Iraqi people. There are people in Iraq <laughs> which which do not see themselves as as one people, or at least some of them do not see themselves as belonging to the same people. Certainly not to the same nation. This is particularly. True with respect to the Kurds in the in the north, which which once uh, the tyranny of, of uh, Saddam Hussein and, has, and his predecessors has uh, broke down, uh, has actually gained uh, de facto independence, even mm-hmm. even even if uh, the Jewry they are still part of the Iraqi state. So and, and even the, the Shia and the Sunni do not uh, see themselves as as belonging uh, to the same collective. And, and we see the same process in in Syria. I mean, there is a, a people in the, the are pe- there are people in Syria, but the, there is hardly a, a Syrian people or or a Syrian nation. And once once the tyranny of uh, 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 breaks down, you see the 
various uh, communities of uh, of Syria at each other's throat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I want to ask you about a a more I, I I don't know if it's more important. Probably in your uh, area of the world, it's not more important. But Americans think a lot about China these days, and uh, China is an empire. There are large, large ethnic groups in it um, sure. that are not yeah. they, they do not have any sort of national representation. Do you have any opinion on what's going to happen there? Well, uh, we, should, we must uh, begin by saying that ninety percent of of the Chinese are Han Chinese, yeah. so they, they are the, the, the majority people, the the majority nation is overwhelming. But there are about fifty fifty something um, so called ethnic uh, group or nationality minority nationalities in China. The most uh, the most problematic in this respect, in the, from the point of view of, of the rulers of Beijing, are uh, the Tibetans mm-hmm. and the Muslims, the Uyghurs of in, in uh, yeah. Xinjiang in the northwest, the and, and, and so long as there is uh, as there is uh, you know a Chinese uh, authoritarian or totalitarian system in place, they, they are unlikely to be able to break uh, away from China. And if and when uh, the uh, the the um, there is a regime change in China, which I'm I'm not sure is going to happen anytime soon. Uh, there might be there might be renewed uh, appeals for uh, national independence on mm-hmm. on the part of both the Tibetan and Uyghurs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I also want to ask you about the United States. I um, <laughs> you'll pardon me for saying that I'm a big believer in American exceptionalism. <laughs> I don't think there's a, friend, a Polish friend of mine who lived in the United States and he was about to go back to Poland. He said to me as his parting words, he said, "You know." The United States is not a country; it's an experiment. <laughs> I think that's pretty much right. Uh, is there American nation? I mean, is it, how does how does your theory how does all this play out on American soil? Of course, there is American nation. Americans feel that very strongly. I mean, there is an American people. There is an American nation. Obviously, it's a nation and a people of immigrants, and people are quite aware of the fact that they came from uh, from uh, different places or that the ancestors they came from uh, different places, and then some of them still uh, have a warm uh, place in the heart for the old country. And uh, obviously there are also religious uh, differences that still uh, play out in the, in the, the uh, I mean, among the various uh, population. But the people also share in a, uh, in, in, in a very strong uh, sense, not only of loyalty to the, to the American, uh, to, to, to the state and to the constitution, as, as many people are positive, but but to a common American culture, people speak English. They they uh, they uh, put their old languages behind them, and uh, from the second or third generation, people speak uh, English as the first or it's most most cases as the only language. They partake of, of an American of a distinctly American culture, even though they may uh, retain symbols of the some sim- symbols of the old uh, of the old uh, ethnic. Uh, Identity. So, above all, the culture is American. That that what makes the, an American people and an American nation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I quite agree with you. One of the things I tell my students when we talk about nationalism in Europe in the 19th century and people fleeing nationalism in the nations of Europe is that uh, America solved the problem of nationality by reducing ethnicity to food. So you come to the United <laughs> States and you open a restaurant. <laughs> and then the next generation, your son or daughter is a doctor, and it's Absolutely. over. <laughs> Absolutely, ethnicity is for Sunday afternoon meals at uh, Grandma's house. <laughs> in America, in America, yeah, just well, in America. What is called ethnicity in America is precisely that. Yeah, no, and it's a it's a curious thing. I mean, and and one of the things that holds Americans together is to, this notion that we are a, a nation of immigrants. This is on everybody's lips. Sure, nobody ever forgets this, and nobody can ever forget it. Um, because sure. it's it's a kind of political sacred cow, which is why we have such trouble with immigration reform and things like this. We're always very ambivalent about it, no matter how much it hurts us. We just can't bring ourselves to do this because the sort of the, the the central point of our nation is that you come here, you get one generation, and then you're going to become like us. Sure, that's the basic deal. <laughs> it's a pretty good deal because a lot of people want to come here. The fact is that people do want to come to America. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty good deal. Yeah, it's a it's a Pretty, it's a pretty good deal. Now, not to mention, you know, there are nations in the United States, of course, there are all the um, all the Native Americans and things like this, sure. and and there are large su- ethnic subcultures in the United States, but they are uh, explicitly sort of um, 
they are explicitly, uh, I guess, placed under this larger American identity, which which is, I think, as you point out, very strong. It's, it's sure. you know, Americans go overseas and they immediately recognize that they're Americans. Sure. Just, tend to forget it because I mean the, the idea of of, of of a nation of immigrants is very strong and the multi ethnicity and all that and all, all of these are obviously true to a certain extent, but the overwhelming overwhelming reality is that people from all over the world. Uh, come to America and become Americans, not only in terms of citizenship, but ultimately also in terms of culture, language, and all, all the rest. For good or ill. <laughs> mostly for good. Yeah, mostly for good. <laughs> yeah, for good or ill. But I mean, I think the same thing could probably be said of uh, of Canada. I think in Australia, similarly, I think it's a little bit like that in Australia. I don't know. I've not been to Australia. Australia. Yes, New Zealand. In Canada, Canada is, is, is uh, a good parallel because we see that we're well, there is a competing ethno-national identity very much entrenched as, as with the Quebecois. So there is a problem of how do we, of, of, of maintaining the nation and the, the, uh, the, uh, the threat of secession or of splitting the nation along, uh, along ethno-national uh, lines, is there? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I also think, yeah, yes, that's right. I also think that we should give uh, Israel some credit as well, because a lot of uh, Jews go to Israel. I was going to say go back to Israel, but they've never been there. Um, and they become Israelis. I mean, I've had friends that have done it. I mean, they, you know, they were as American as they could be, and their, their kids are Israelis. That's what they are. <laughs> They're Israelis. Um, so this does happen. I, I'm also interested to hear what you think about the European Union. Uh, the European Union is uh, a union of nation states, uh, and the, you can see this very clearly uh, during the uh, during the current crisis, where, where national identities uh, again become uh, very much strong. If it, uh, I mean, I, I mean, it's uh, the uh, idea of bailing out other other members of the. Uh, of the European Union by investing your own money is is uh, is, uh, is very problematic in the eyes of the very of the richer peoples of, of Europe. So it's it's a nation it's a union of national states and what is more we have more and more of them because of the European nation because the smaller nations of Europe now find that they have that they have the uh, the uh, European umbrella. Uh, as a convenient uh, broader framework, and they, they no longer need to belong to NATO, to the historical nation to which they belong, and we see this in, uh, say, in Scotland and in Catalonia and then in other places. Uh, so, it, on the one hand, it's obviously uh, a, a broader uh, framework than the national uh, framework, and over time, who knows? I'm, I'm a little skeptical about that. As if if they develop a, a, a stronger sense of Europe as a culture, as a, a common cultural identity, and so forth. They become more like a nation. But at the moment, and in my view, for the foreseeable future, it's going to remain a union of nations. Yeah, there's no. I mean, that's an interesting thing. Unlike the United States, there's no common culture. To exactly, no, no common language. No, there's no there's culture. no sort of center there. I mean, the, the I guess the most influential group in the European Union is Germany, but people are clearly not going to become Germans, and it's not even clear the Germans want them to become Germans. Um, so, I guess I would be interested to see, having spent some time among uh, immigrant groups in the European, you know, Spaniards, for example, are all over the place in the UK. It'll be interesting to see whether they raise their children as, uh, I don't know, English or or. Irish or whatever they happen to be. Most of them are going to assimilate as with immigrants uh, anywhere, but 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 most of the Spain, the majority of the Spaniards still live in Spain or yeah, in Castile, uh, more, more technically. <laughs> so and, and they are going to remain uh, Spanish or Spaniard. Mm-hmm. So let me. Ask, yeah, I was going to say let me let me ask you a kind of controversial question, and I don't want to put you on the spot, um, but it is interesting <laughs> to me as a matter of public or national policy. Um, let's take the Germans for example. I don't know if they have these rules anymore or not. But they did at one time have rules that said that um, you could come and actually I know I have a friend that, that did this. Uh, he his parents had <laughs> he was Jewish and his parents were kicked out of Germany in the 30s, and he uh, because he was of German quote unquote German descent he was able to get German citizenship just like that sure. right. Sure. Uh, so there are these laws that 
treat the descendants of people, and these exist in Israel as well, uh, yes. preferentially. Um, I think most people, most liberal people, don't like this at all. Is there? But but again, thinking about your argument, it seems like some accommodation should be made for these natural feelings of, I guess, ethnic solidarity. What, what's your feeling about that? Well, my my book is not a normative book, and yeah, no, I understand. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, uh, and, and my own belief is that norms are, are and, and values are mostly subjective things, and and obviously there are different uh, there are different. Um, norms here uh, among states and uh, each reflects a uh, different uh, attitude by the by the country in question. I, I see no problem with the idea of, of those who are regarded as your kin uh, people that are somehow scattered uh, for, with the Germans. For example, there were large uh, German minorities, as we said, throughout uh, Eastern Europe and in Russia. And uh, the idea that they are your kin and that they are entitled to come back and rejoin the nation. I, I see no problem in yeah, I, I think that's a very realistic way to look at it, and I'm glad you point out the, the sort of odd similarity, it's hard to say, but between the Germans and the Jews. They were both scattered after World War II, and uh, so for the Germans to say people of German descent come home, uh, that's not. I don't think that's an illegitimate thing. I personally am hoping that the British offer me citizenship because my people <laughs> came here 200 years ago, <laughs> driven I'm out sure of they, England. I'm sure they will. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> that would be very nice. Well, Azar, it's been really uh, terrific talking with you today about your book, Nations, The Long History and Deep Roots of Political Ethnicity and Nationalism. Uh, let me uh, ask our traditional final question, and that is, what are you working on now? What's your next project? I'm working about uh, about a book provisionally entitled "The Causes of War and the Causes of Peace," mm-hmm. and it's an uh, offshoot from my war in human civilization. That now concentrating more directly on that question. It's it's time we knew why why people fight yeah. and why they don't. Yeah, no, I, I would like to know that as well. I try to fight as little as I can. The older I get, the less I want to fight. I just don't have Good. time for it. <laughs> when I was younger, I loved it. But now I just don't have time for it. So anyway, I want to thank everybody for listening to the New Books Network today. We've been talking with Azar Gad about his book, Again, Nations, The Long History and Deep Roots of Political Ethnicity and Nationalism. Azar, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for hosting me. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.